Hey everyone, Paul Anleitner here. Welcome back to the program. I hope you've had an opportunity to listen to the previous episode or to watch it on YouTube. Episode 11 is entitled Philosophy in the Dark Night. And in it, it's the first of our series where we're going to be exploring deep ideas of philosophy, theology, embedded in film. And so if you haven't watched that or listened to it, I want to encourage you to go back and do so. It's a brief, it's a like 20-minute, 22-minute episode. Because what I want to do today is actually show you guys how six essential questions, six meaning-making questions that everybody explores, how certain answers to those questions can lead somebody to think of the world and interact with the world like the Joker. I want to explore today how someone actually becomes a nihilist. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to go over six big questions. These are questions people have wrestled with for most of human history. And these questions, these aren't the only questions, but these six questions are some of the biggest ones that people wrestle with and they they seek to find answers for. Now, the answers that you find to these questions may lead you to interact with the world and the people around you in very different ways. So in today's episode, let's look at the big six questions and how the way we answer those questions could lead us to a Joker worldview. First of all, what does that term worldview even mean? What what do I mean when I say worldview? Uh, Someone's worldview is the story they believe about reality. It's the operating system of their life. It's the interpretive lens by which they come to understand the world and their place in it. A worldview is a set of presuppositions someone might hold to. These presuppositions might be true. They might be partially true. They might even be entirely false. These are presuppositions which people hold to, and they can hold them consciously or subconsciously. They can be consistent or inconsistent, but they're presuppositions that people hold about the basic constitution of reality. What is reality like? And everybody has one. Now, there's varying degrees by which people intentionally try to formulate a coherent worldview. Uh, We could also say there's varying levels in which people live an examined life. But we are meaning-making creatures. We are meaning-making machines. We, We can't help but try to make sense of our experiences of reality and our place in the universe. And so for as long as humans have had the prefrontal cortex ability to be aware of their own thoughts, humans have asked these six questions. Now, this isn't to say that they've asked them in this exact manner, but in general, these six questions have been the biggest questions that people wrestle with. 
Now, traditionally, what organized religions do or organized schools of philosophical thought is they provide answers to these six And what I would contend to you guys today is that the representation that we see of the Joker in the Dark Knight, while it may seem like he's insane, he is living very consistently with a set of answers to these big six questions. And it's really not the Joker, right? It's I truly believe that this is Nolan, Christopher Nolan, taking... Nietzsche's moral critique, his moral nihilism, and simply putting that into a comic book character, if you will. As we'll explore in future episodes, most of Christopher Nolan's movies exist entirely within a naturalist worldview. And uh, one of the ones we will explore in future episodes is Interstellar. That's another great example of a film just laden with great philosophical insights, questions, and exploration. So now as we go through these big six questions, what I want to do is just do a little comparison. Uh, Comparison between how theistic traditions, in particular Christianity, answers these big six questions, and how naturalism, physicalism, or materialism would answer these six questions to show you that the Joker isn't a monster, that he is just ahead of the curve. He's in keeping with this ideology. The way he acts in the world is in keeping with the set of answers to these questions. That is the predominant worldview for many people in the Western world. The first big question is, what is really real? What is prime reality? What is the foundational layer of reality? Is it God? Is it the universe? Is it myself? Is it thought? This is in philosophy. This is the realm of metaphysics. What is ultimately real? What is the necessary by which all contingencies derive their being from? Real quick, just to help you understand maybe the difference between what we would say is necessary from what is contingent. Um, Hopefully you believe that if for some reason you had never been born, that reality still would exist. You would never know it, right? But there was a time in which you did not exist, and yet reality still existed. So if you believe that, then you would say you certainly wouldn't believe that you are prime reality, that you are the necessary. Now, what if uh, for some reason the earth didn't exist? Well, hopefully you believe you have an agreement with reality as we know it, that there was a time in which the earth did not exist, and yet the universe still existed. So answering the question of what is prime reality is essentially peeling back all the layers of reality 
all the layers of contingency, right? So my existence is contingent upon the existence of the earth. The earth's existence is contingent upon the existence of the universe. But is there anything that the universe's existence is contingent upon? That is what we're talking about with the question of what is prime reality or ultimate reality. Now, throughout time, again, different religions, different philosophies, different meaning-making systems have answered this question differently. So, for example, in theistic traditions, in, in traditional religions such as Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, for example, the way they would answer that question, what is prime reality, what is really real what is the necessary by which all contingency derives its being from? They would say God. Now, the naturalist, as we talked about in the episode, episode 11, we talked about how naturalism by the late 19th to early 20th century, naturalism had become the predominant worldview in the West. And what I mean by that is not that people were no longer religious by the time we hit the 20th century, certainly not. But especially in academia, notions of God as prime reality had fallen out of fashion. And what got re- what God was replaced with was the universe. The universe is what is really real. Or now and today, it's, it's fashionable to, to believe in a multiverse. But regardless, whether it's a multiverse or a universe, materialists, naturalists, physicalists, their ultimate reality, their prime reality is matter. Matter is what the foundational layer of reality is. There's nothing, you can't go further back. So the second question that people look to have answered. And again, it's not like they necessarily go in this order, you know, functionally that people, as they start exploring and try to make sense of the world, they go, number one is this. Number two is this. I think ideally um, to make this, to have a coherent understanding of the world, um, getting them in this order helps you to best make sense of it. But this isn't the way practically people go through these questions, right? The second question, so first question is, what is prime reality? Meaning, what is really real? What is the foundational layer of reality? We can't peel back any further than this. The second question is, what is the nature of the world around us? What is external reality? And we differentiate external reality from prime reality because, again, in in Christianity and as well as in other theistic traditions, external reality is contingent upon prime reality. That is to say, external reality doesn't have to exist. That's why we might call it external reality. There's prime reality. This is necessary for there to be anything proper, to we could properly say anything exists at all. External reality is not necessary. So, uh, it's contingent on prime reality. External reality is, for Christians, uh, it is the universe, right? It is what was created. It's emanated out of God. It is being sustained by God. It is the ground 
Uh, God is the ground for the existence of external reality. But if external reality didn't exist and Christians, for the most part, you know, I guess there has been a growing movement of people that are trying to make sense of especially the problem of evil and are moving away from the Christian doctrine of creation ex nihilo or creation out of nothing. But that would be a conversation for another time. For the most part, the vast majority of Christians throughout time have said uh, the universe is contingent upon God's existence. And there was a time in which the universe didn't exist. So what is the nature of the world around us? Is it created or autonomous? Is it ordered or chaotic? Is it comprised of matter only or matter and spirit? Or if we were to maybe instead use terminology from Greek philosophy, is it matter and mind? Are those separate things? Are they holistically one? So how Christians historically have answered this is they have said, well, the nature of the world around us, this external reality is created It is ordered, even though we experience and we see in the universe elements of chaos. God ordered the universe. It's an orderly universe, like the laws of physics make sense. And as far as we know, they have always worked like that as long as our universe has existed, and they will continue to work like that. So in that sense, it's ordered. And external reality is comprised of not simply matter, but matter and spirit. And they are not for Christians, you know, historic Orthodox Christian theology is that these are not separate realities, but they are holistically one. Matter and spirit is all part of the external reality of the universe that God has created. Now for naturalists though, their answers to these questions are different. And it's now we start getting... I mean, the first question, first question um, certainly has implications. How someone answers what is prime reality and a naturalist going, well, it's n- not God, it's the universe. That alone, um, it does have some implications how one, w- how one lives in the world and how they might make sense or struggle to make sense of meaning. These following questions, this is where we really begin to see how these affect someone's sense of meaning and purpose in the world. So for a naturalist, the nature of the world around us, external reality, external reality is no different than prime reality. The external reality of the universe is what is the foundational foundational layer of existence. We can't peel it back to there being a time in which there wasn't matter. Uh, It's always been a physical universe. But again, here's a different point of difference, right? Christians and other religious traditions would say the universe has a definitive point of creation. Naturalists would say, no, Uh, it has always existed and it's autonomous. It wasn't created. It's uh, autonomous. Our universe if you believe in a multiverse theory, which is growing in popularity in the sciences, um, you know, the Big Bang was not uh, intended. It wasn't created. It was autonomous. The nature of external reality is also not 
ordered, though there are laws of physics that seem to govern it, it is random that we have laws of physics. It is chaotic. So reality is autonomous, it's chaotic and random, and it's comprised only of matter, not spirit. The third question, and you know, this actually, this third question might be for many people the the point in which they actually start at existentially, like when they're starting to really either re-examine or they hit whatever age that is, and it seems to hit kids at different ages where they really first start to ask questions about, what am I doing here? <laughs> like, why are we here? The third question is, what does it mean to be a human? Who am I? Why am I here? And again, this might be for most people where they begin, where they first begin their philosophical or theological journey is by questioning, what am I doing here? Why are, why are we here? What does it mean to be a human? Am I simply a complex machine? Am I a highly evolved animal? Am, am I myself a god? Am I made or fashioned in the image of a god, in the image of the god? What's my purpose? Is there any purpose at all? Am I unique? Are humans unique in the universe? Are we just made of matter and nothing more? Are, are we spirits trapped in a mortal shell? Are we some combination of matter and spirit? Is one bad? Is the other one good? If I have a spirit in me somewhere, where is it? <laughs> where do I find it? These are the questions that people wrestle with when they say, who am I? What does it mean to be human? And we could kind of go through some of those sub-questions, right? In the Christian tradition, what it means to be human is I'm not a complex machine. I'm not simply a highly evolved animal. Uh, you Christians have affirmed that God has created humanity in his image and in his likeness, that they have a particular purpose and different Christian traditions have answered what is my purpose in different ways. I would say the best answer for what is my purpose is to participate in the loving unity of the Trinitarian God, to be a participant in eternal communion with the Godhead, that would be my answer <laughs> in, a, in a tweetable format. I think there is a purpose. Are we unique in the universe? Um, you know, from a Christian perspective, there is some uniqueness to humanity in comparison to other animals on this planet. We would, Christians would say that we are not just matter and nothing else. And they would also, they shouldn't say at least, that they are spirits trapped in a mortal shell. That's Gnosticism. That was a that was a early heresy. So um, a lot of times Christians talk like that, uh, but that shouldn't be the way Christians 
think. And historically, Christians have said in some way, shape, or form that we are material, and yet there is uh, some sort of immaterial spirit, soul in us. So, um, some have throughout uh, church history broken that up into three parts. They might say spirit, soul, and body. Others have split it into some sort of, um, you know, duality of spirit or soul and body. And then there's others that have simply said there is some sort of complex conglomeration there, some some sort of union between matter and spirit that we don't fully understand. But for naturalists, their answer to those questions are, are just just totally uh, totally different, right? Um, for naturalists, humans are complex machines and highly evolved animals. But uh, there is no clear, we can't say there is a clear purpose for humanity. We can say uh, some biological purposes that they perform. We could say that humans as highly evolved animals are uh, more consciously aware of their evolution. We could say that their purpose in a naturalistic sense, purely naturalistic sense, is to survive and to procreate, right? But there isn't an ethical purpose for humanity. And I have to say, if a naturalist is attempting to create one, what they're doing is now they're borrowing from a different meaning-making system. They're borrowing from a different worldview if they're going to start assigning uh, ethical meaning to humanity. Now, the answer to the question, are, are we unique in the universe? I mean, you're going to get varying answers from naturalists. I was listening to an interview today on Joe Rogan's podcast. Physicist, I believe his name was Brian Cox. And he was saying, you know, statistically, the likelihood of us being unique in um, our capacity for intelligence and our consciousness and our civilization to be unique in the universe is is probably fairly low. I mean, there's there's very likely some other things like us out there. Um, you have a scale of responses to that. And I've certainly heard other people go, no, I mean, theoretically there might be, but we'll never know if there are other beings in the universe that share similar properties to us. And certainly... From a genetic standpoint, we are not that unique even on our planet. There is only small, you know, very minute, um, from when it comes to our genetic code, differences between us and apes, chimpanzees, and uh, other living things on the planet. Octopus, octopi, as he, Brian Cox, talked about in this interview I was listening to earlier. Uh, humans are simply matter and nothing more. And so there's implications to that, which actually lead us to the next question. If you're simply matter and nothing more, then when you die, that matter decomposes and that's it of you. Your, your consciousness is simply, what you experience as consciousness is simply the result of the parts in you. It's re, this result of the advanced computer that we call 
your brain and it gives you this experience of of consciousness. But when that thing breaks down or shuts down, baby, you're you're not conscious anymore. You're not in a you're not going to be transferred to some other state, some other spiritual state. That's that's it. And they, that's the fourth question, the fourth question people wrestle with as they try to make sense of life and their experiences is what what happens to me when I die? Where do bad folks go when they die? It's Kurt Cobain saying. Is it simply a, a personal extinction, right? Is it a transformation to some higher state or reincarnation or heaven, hell, or purgatory, right? So, you know, across the different theistic traditions, there are wide, wildly different answers on what happens to a, a person at death. In fact, there was there's far more commonality among different religious perspectives in the answer to the question of what is prime reality than there is to what happens to a person at death. And even among Christians, there's a lot of different responses and it, we will most certainly at some point in this podcast life <laughs> lifetime, which I hope is will, will, a long time, uh, will explore those different positions that Christians have held to. So there's not a uniform answer on what happens to a person at death. But what has been, for the most part, fairly uniform across religious traditions and across different uh, denominations and, and traditions within Christianity is that personal extinction isn't what happens to you at death that there is some part of you perhaps immaterial that may live on after death and experience some some kind of judgment and again you know martin luther for example just thought when people died they they just were in essentially soul sleep until till judgment day um you know you've got you got so many different perspectives we're not going to unpack those today but uh, the key difference being is that, for the most part, Christians have historically believed there is a sense in which when you die, uh, you that isn't it for your existence. Very different than naturalists, right? Because as a naturalist, you're made up of stuff. That's, that's all that there is. And when that stuff breaks down, that, that's all that there is of you. The next big question that people wrestle with is how and why is it possible to know anything at all? This is what in philosophy is called epistemology. How do we know things and why are we able to understand the world or anything at all? Christians historically have said it's because we are made in the image of God and God made humanity with the purpose to intimately know him and his works. And so he gave them, wired into them somehow the these capabilities of rational thought, uh, which help us understand the world and and the possibility to know him through revelation, which we might consider supra-rational or supra-cognitive. That is to say that it's a an instinct, it's a means of perceiving that is of a different qualitative kind than rational thought. 
Now, before we see how naturalists attempt to answer this question, we have to keep in mind that naturalism emerged from a theistic womb. Like we talked about in the last podcast, it was people like Sir Isaac Newton, who was himself a theist, who answered the questions that we have proposed already a particular way that's in keeping with the Christian worldview, the Christian understanding of the universe, that the way he answered that question led him to believe that we lived in an orderly universe that was knowable and was discernible. This, again, is what Christians call general revelation. So, in a certain sense, we could say that the Enlightenment was just a movement of people getting really, really excited about general revelation. The problem that emerged, though, and all of the good stuff that happened in the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution were many of the superstitions that were held in the medieval period were re-examined in the light of general revelation. What happened is that all of these sorts of God of the gap beliefs that people had held to, where they assigned specifically some sort of like immaterial spiritual causation to events that happened in our physical universe, the, the gap started being removed. There was material, mechanical explanations for their processes. And what ended up happening over this period of time was that the gap, the God of the gaps was reduced to the point where all we needed was a God who was the prime mover to essentially get it started, to get the universe started. And then this machine would run by itself. It's the deist picture of the clockmaker God. Or, I mean, all the naturalists did was just take it a step further and go, well, we don't need the clockmaker. I mean, just as easy as it is for you theists to say that God is uncaused, well, we're just simply going to say that the universe is uncaused, that the universe is the necessary. So throughout this process of the Enlightenment, and we head into the 19th and 20th century, reason has moved from being a necessary thing that we must employ to understand reality to being sufficient to understanding reality. And there's a big paradoxical problem with reason being sufficient to understanding all of reality. The picture that emerges when reason is sufficient to understanding all of reality creates conditions by which reason doesn't even make sense anymore. So let me explain this. Let me try to help you understand this problem and the problem naturalists have when they say, we can know things through reason and reason alone. The picture of reality that emerges from this practice of reducing the universe to that by which we can only know is hugely problematic. Let me explain. To the naturalist, the picture of reality that reason and the sufficiency of reason has produced is a universe that is, again, prime reality in and of itself. It's uncreated. It is a closed system, again, because it is the necessary layer of reality. There is no outside force, no outside thing that's able to enter it and reorder it in any way, shape, or form. The first cause that 
created the conditions by which we experience reality was the Big Bang. The Big Bang was the ignition, the turning on of the ignition in the machinery of the universe. It was the first domino that fell in a near infinite series of falling dominoes that leads us up to this present moment. All the universe is is a machine of cause and effect. So what I'm doing right now in recording this podcast and you listening is brought about by a previous cause. And before that, another previous cause. And before that, another previous cause. And on and on and on until we eventually get back to the Big Bang. And again, what the Big Bang does is essentially explode out a bunch of dominoes while simultaneously being the first domino to have fallen. And if you've ever played with dominoes, or maybe you've done this with a deck of cards, where you lay out the dominoes across a table or across a floor, and then you push that first domino down, as the dominoes fall, if you were to go up and ask one of the dominoes, hey, do you have free will as to what direction you're going to fall? fall?" (laughs) One, the domino isn't going to be able to answer back, because it's not even free to answer you. It's simply going to fall because of the previous force that caused it to fall. And in this worldview, because humans are complex, nothing more than machines within the machine, all the things that we do and consider free will and free choice are simply us responding to a previous reaction. And our response isn't a controllable Response just like the domino can't control where it falls. It has no sense of agency. It's it's falling is predestined to happen that way. It's determined by the laws of physics. But without mind or or spirit in this reality, your brain, your body as a machine is simply operating under these same laws of physical processes. And so what we think is free choice, what we think is the free will to have listened to this podcast or to not have listened to this podcast is simply the reaction that we are presently experiencing in this really, really long chain of causal events. Not only is this a problem when we get into the subject of ethics, which will be next, but it's a problem for epistemology. Things are no longer true or false, at least insofar as you're concerned. Things just are. Your experience of reality and your perception of it is beyond your control. You were fated to this perception of reality. So what is the statistical likelihood that a random series of cause and effect could lead you in this vast 13 to 14 billion year old universe, this 14 billion year chain of cause and effect could lead you to somehow have an accurate perception of reality? It's just absurd. And this is the absurdity of the universe that naturalism creates. Dominoes just fall. They don't fall to true or false conclusions about reality. 
And you are nothing more in the naturalist worldview than the result of a previous domino falling. All right, so I could honestly, I could spend hours talking about the problems with epistemology in naturalism, the problems with the answer to how and why is it possible to know anything at all from a naturalist perspective. But let's let's talk about the last question, the sixth question. Again, yes, there are other questions, and I know it's kind of cheating to say there's six big questions, but then they have all these sub-questions underneath them. I, I get that. But in general, these six overarching questions are historically some of the biggest questions that humans have attempted to answer to make sense of reality. So the last big question is, is there right and wrong? And how do we know right from wrong? Who defines what is right and what is wrong? What's, what's the process for determining what is right and wrong? Is it decided by some objective source of right and wrong? Is it just simply our survival instincts? Is it the will of the group or determined by the will of the individual? Is it relative to the situation? Now, to answer this question, Christians and you know most other theistic traditions have answered in the positive that there is a right and wrong. They have affirmed the existence of uh, objective ethics, that ethics has a objective standard and that it does exist, that there is a right and wrong. And they have answered in the affirmative that we can know right from wrong. For Christians, who or what defines what is right or wrong is inextricably linked to the answer of what is prime reality. So if what is necessary, being God, has created external reality to operate in a particular way and has given humans, as part of what it means to be a human, the ability to have a free choice to act in the world in a way that isn't, isn't, doesn't reduce them to simply being machines, then God has given them the capacity to act in accordance with his designs for the universe or to not. And that is simply best definition of what right and wrong is. It's acting in accordance with God's intention for reality. And what is wrong is to act against God's intention for reality. Perhaps if you grew up in evangelical traditions or Catholic or uh, some other high church tradition, and maybe they were really heavy in talking about sin and they framed it in a different way, I honestly think this is the best way of framing it. Are you acting in alignment with God's intention for reality? And uh, so Christians have affirmed there is right and wrong. It is objectively set by the that which created reality being God. And to do right or to do wrong is to act in accordance with the designed intention of God for reality. Now, how we go about defining what that intentionality is for reality 
That's a lot more complicated. We, we're not going to unpack that today. That will have to be for a future episode to get into um, kind of an epistemology of ethics. But in short, how we know right from wrong is through the same mediums that we know anything at all, and that's through reason and revelation, the, the avenues for understanding external reality and prime reality that God has designed into uh, the human species. Now, in naturalism, there are significant issues with trying to give an answer to is there right and wrong, and how do we know right from wrong? One of the weakest, even probably admittedly by naturalists themselves, one of the weakest and most efficient areas for a naturalist is in the area of ethics. That's why people like Sam Harris, who's a naturalist, are working so hard to try to create some sort of secular uh, moral ethic that is in some way objective and can be objectively quantified and measurable is because there is admittedly no intention to the universe. Not only is there no intention to the universe and no intender for the universe and how the universe should function, humans, again, are simply cogs in the machine and they are devoid of true ability to do anything other than what they have been mechanically determined to do. And this is why I so appreciate Nietzsche, because unlike so many of the kind of the new atheist movement today, Nietzsche readily recognized that within the naturalist framework, there can't be free will. And because there can't be free will, our notions in Western thought of morality, which again are derived from a sort of Judeo-Christian theistic worldview, our notions of morality are ridiculous. And he at least had the guts to say it, similar to the Joker, right? Why, that's why the Joker said, I'm not a monster, I'm ahead of the curve. Nietzsche was simply ahead of the curve, and we don't like the results of it, but it is consistent with the answers to the previous five big questions. So let's say, for example, that you want to defend as a naturalist, you want to defend the existence of some sort of ethical standard that humans should abide by and participate in. And let's say that standard is simply the, the survival of the species. Now, I, I don't know why this, the species needs to survive other than I guess you might go, well, you know, surviving is better than not surviving. Sure. So if it's the survival of the species, the problem that we come up against is when the will of some to do what they think is in the best interest of the species surviving a la Nazi Germany brushes up against other perhaps instinctive feelings of ethics and morality, who wins? I mean, have you heard of the Lebensbahn before? That program that took place in Nazi Germany um, initiated by the SS, and the goal of it was essentially to create a new humanity where, oh, gosh, it's this is like, <laughs> I imagine like Nazi Tinder, if you will, 
um, where the goal was to essentially hook up to get the beautiful people to procreate those that were seen as racially worthy, you know, the pure, pure Aryan children, those that had peak physical fitness and health so that they could go on to produce that kind of human species in the world. And I'm sure you're familiar with Nazi programs of eliminating and killing the um, mentally and physically disabled and obviously the, the races that they saw inferior like the Jews in the Holocaust. But if what is right is simply what is best for the continuation of the species, then I don't know how you can say eugenics is actually wrong. I mean, you might not like it. <laughs> you might not like um, someone saying that uh, you should be sterilized. You might not like that someone thinks that because you have asthma or a birth defect that you should not procreate. You might not like that, but but that's your opinion brushing up against someone else's opinion on what's best for the species. So then what are you left with to resolve that dispute? Well, you're simply left with the will to power. And now all we have is a competition, a struggle for survival, a struggle for whose notions of what is right should be allowed to survive. And this is why how we answer these big six questions isn't just important for us as individuals, but it's important for all of humanity. Because if naturalism is true, can't Hitler simply say, I'm not a monster, I'm just ahead of the curve? And who are we to argue? Now, again, I am not saying that your atheist neighbor who might be, who's probably a naturalist or Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris, that they are on par with Hitler or the fictional Joker. This is not what I'm saying. People that are naturalists can live perfectly ethical lives that are in accordance with uh, at least in some level, they can live in accordance with what Christians would say is God's intention for reality. They can do that. They can act in a way that is morally right and just. But I would say to do so is to act inconsistently with the answers the naturalist worldview provides them. Maybe one of the things that people found so compelling about the Joker when they came out of seeing The Dark Knight for the first time, it, obviously Heath Ledger's portrayal, his acting, it was brilliant. It was, it was compelling in and of itself. But I think another reason is that many people didn't have answers to the questions Joker was asking in this movie. And in many ways, the questions that he was presenting were deep questions people who have held to this naturalist framework really have asked themselves in perhaps their their deep private moments of reflection as we go through each 
answer to the six big questions that naturalism will give, we can see the implications of these answers leading to a joker worldview. So let's just go one by one here and see how someone could get a joker worldview, could become a nihilist by simply the logical implications of naturalism's answers to the big six questions. First of all, if what prime reality is is the physical universe and nothing more, then we are alone in this big, expansive universe. And this universe is a mere accident, a statistical unlikelihood that it would create the conditions necessary for us to even be able to perceive its existence. Within that chance occurrence of a universe, we occupy an infinitesimally small sliver of time in this random, unintended universe. And who we are as humans, who I am as a person, is of no more value than an animal, a tree, a rock, a pebble on the beach, at least... At least that tree or that pebble on the beach has a longer lifespan to it. I mean, I may be unique in my ability to perceive the universe, but that almost feels like a curse in lieu of its purposelessness. And when I die, that's it for me. And why in this brief sliver of time, the random occurrence of the universe has created conditions by which I'm able to perceive these things, boy, even that has led me to this conclusion that I can't trust what I perceive. I'm just a cog in the machine. Perhaps perhaps I'm fated to think about the universe in a false way. Perhaps I am fated because of previous causes to have completely wrong perceptions of reality in myself. It's beyond my control. I have no free will. And and because I have no free will, and because there is no intended design for the universe, there's no right and wrong. These ethical standards are holdovers from the myth of religion, and perhaps they are simply kept in power by those that have the will to power. It's absurd. The universe is absurd. Or, perhaps we could put it this way, it's a bad joke. And this, my friends, is nihilism. The denial of meaning. The denial of the possibility of knowledge of value the denial of all worldviews, because if naturalism is true, it can't be true. This is the paradoxical problem. And this is the great despair of our age, why a character like the Joker resonates so deeply with people, why Seinfeld, the show about nothing, was such a, a, a profound work of art in pop culture. It's why nihilistic comedies like BoJack Horseman or Rick and Morty 
are so incredibly popular with people in my generation and younger. It's because the answers that people have been told are the best way to think about reality. If you don't laugh about it, you become suicidal and depressed. Because as meaning-making creatures, it's like the programs in us shut down when we can't find meaning for our existence. I'm glad that the naturalist story is not the only story that we have, that reasonable people don't have to believe that is the only story about reality. Now, I've come to believe the Christian story has a better explanation of reality. Certainly, I will confess, it's not without its questions. It's not without its possible flaws. But I want to invite each of you to living the examined life, not to just blindly accept whatever answers I may attempt to give to these big questions in this podcast But I want to invite you to re-examine the big six questions and to go through, even write your answers down, and that might be helpful, or type them up somewhere. It's a good practice to actually write to help you re-examine what you actually think about a subject. And as you're answering those questions, I also want to invite you to answer the question of why you believe those answers to those particular questions. And I'd really love to hear from you guys as you do this, as you attempt to go back and re-examine and to take a a fruitful inventory of how you see reality. I'd, I'd love to hear about how that process went. So leave me a comment on either, this could be on YouTube, it could be on iTunes or Podbean. Or you can find me on Twitter at Paul Hanleitner. That's at P-A-U-L-A-N-L-E-I-T-N-E-R. We can connect on there. You can follow me on Instagram too. I want to engage with you guys in this process because it's better when we don't do it alone. So thanks again for listening. Thank you for subscribing leaving a rating and review on the podcast platform of your choice or on the YouTube channel. We'll talk again next time.